Welcome to today's episode of Ownership Matters, a podcast for homeowners in resident-owned communities. Brought to you by Rock USA. I'm Paul Bradley. And I'm Mike Bullard. Listeners, we have a great guest for you today. We're being joined by filmmaker Sarah Terry, who is currently touring the Documentary Film Festival circuit with her third documentary called A Decent Home, which she directed, shot, and produced. A Decent Home takes a close look at manufactured home communities, the people who live there, the risks of big money trying to buy communities, and really questions how this is happening all across America. We can't wait to dive into this conversation with Sarah, and be sure to check the show notes for ways to watch A Decent Home. Sarah is an award-winning documentary photographer and filmmaker, best known for her work covering post-conflict stories. She is a 2012 Guggenheim Fellow in Photography for her long-term project, Forgiveness and Conflict, Lessons from Africa. Her first long-term post-conflict body of work, Aftermath, Bosnia's Long Road to Peace, led her to found the Aftermath Project in 2003. An award-winning former staff correspondent for the Christian Science Monitor and magazine freelance writer, Terry made a mid-career transition into documentary photography in the late 1990s. Well, hello, Sarah. It's wonderful to have you on Ownership Matters. Hey, Paul. I was wondering when you were going to invite me. I've known you for long enough. (laughs) (laughs) Busted. (laughs) It's great to have you here. Thanks so much for joining us. And this is going to be fun. We're going to turn the camera, well, actually the microphone on you, uh, as opposed to uh, we'll get you out from behind the camera. This will be great. So let's just start off. uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself, if you would. We know you've been a storyteller for years, but not always from documentary filmmaker vantage point. So tell us a little about your background. Just a long and varied career in journalism and storytelling. I was a reporter for many years for the Christian Science Monitor out of Boston. I did a lot of international traveling for them. I was their Los Angeles correspondent for quite a while. That evolved into public radio when the Monitor started a public radio program. I helped start that. It's not around anymore, unfortunately. But And I then I went on to do freelance work for magazines, New York Times Magazine, Times Magazine, the Boston Globe, Rolling Stone. And then I kind of through accidental but deeply personal circumstances wound up in photography, which led to documentary filmmaking. My very deepest love in life continues to be behind the lens of a camera, whether it's a still camera, I still love, I'm still very much a photographer, or um, behind the lens of a moving camera. As you know, I I shot the whole film for a, A Decent Home, which was the first time I'd done that. So, yeah. That's me in the capsule. Sarah, I want to dig into A Decent Home here in a minute, but first I'm thinking maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about some of your previous films. Sure. My first film grew out of a photography project about forgiveness traditions in post-conflict African countries. I wound up getting a Guggenheim Fellowship in photography for the still photography part of that. took me several more years to finish it. But the film itself came out in 2011. It was supported by the Sundance Documentary Institute, It played in a couple hundred festivals around the world, and it's called Fomble Talk, which is Creo in Sierra Leone for family talk. And it was the story of post-conflict Sierra Leone and the rebuilding of a tradition of resolving conflict through conversation. And it was about establishing peace at the very grassroots level, at the village level, basically, through bonfires where perpetrators and victims from the war came together. And perpetrators confessed, victims forgave, communities committed to restoring and reparations. Wow. 
Yeah, it's an extraordinary program and your listeners can actually see it if they go to the website for the organization, which is fumbletalk.com. The film is available there for free. And then my second film is a very American film. It's about the subculture of American folk music in which I sort of follow sort of three different musicians through this like subculture across America of house concerts and road trips. And I was very interested in exploring the idea of how you continue to pursue your art or be an artist when you're not validated, quote unquote, by the mainstream, you know, when you don't hit it big, like how do you keep being an artist? So that film is about that. And the website for that is folkdocumentary.com. And people would have to write to me and actually pay me to see that because it's not in distribution. <laughs> and I'm still like thousands of dollars in debt on it. So if I ever charge uh-huh. me for the screening, that's why independent artists making independent films. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll definitely put links to those both in the show notes for folks. That raises an interesting question. Let's talk documentary films in general for a moment. What's the process for getting one off the ground? And I'm, I'm curious what that's like from a movie making standpoint, but also I'm thinking about a rock leader listeners who are themselves operating small and, you know, in some cases, not so small businesses, the, the communities where they're living. What's this like as a business proposition? Oh, my goodness. If you looked at it as a business proposition, you would never do it. <laughs> not a sustainable business model. It makes absolutely no sense on that level. A lot of people who are filmmakers have a spouse who actually earns a living or they have family money. So a decent home which is maybe halfway to being a seven-figure budget, was entirely funded by grants that I obtained and backing from private individuals and donors. So I raised all the money for the film. And I, for the first four years, I made this film with no money. You know, I, I had a $10,000 grant from California Humanities in there that helped at the beginning. But yeah, it took being willing to work on my own. Somebody had bought me the camera and I was really frustrated because I did, Fumble Talk was funded by the funder. Folk was done on a wing and a prayer and a Kickstarter campaign. A Decent Home, you know, I swore I would never make another film again where I had to do it without being paid. And yet the story was so important. You know, the journalist in me knew at the time I was working on it, nobody was paying attention to this issue. There was no John Oliver piece. There had been no national news coverage. I actually still had to write the underreported affordable housing crisis when I wrote grant proposals. So this was, you know, like seven years ago. And I finally realized, you know what? I have this camera. I think I've said this to some of your rock leaders before. It was like the idea of what do you have in the house? It's come from a Bible story. And I was like, well, I have this camera that somebody bought for me and I do have some time and I have a car. So I began filming and that's sort of why I was a one person film crew in the beginning, but it also made sense for the film as, as time went on. And then ultimately grants started coming in, you know, Ford foundation has a documentary film program. They were one of our early funders. When John Oliver licensed my footage for his piece, the journalist in me just died. I was like, no, it's my like page one story. I was going to be the person to really break this and, One of my executive producers said, oh, no, 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 Sarah, don't worry about that. He goes, in the doc film world, it'll just make funders go, oh, that is a good idea, which it turned out to be the Uh case. You know, Mm -hmm. funders kept coming in and funders understood how pressing the story is when, you know, private equity in Wall Street is buying up what is essentially a factor of the human condition home. You know, it's, it's just so 
Yeah, that's a roundabout way of telling you, except I did warn you right at the top that it's not a business proposition. I mean, <laughs> if I never make another feature length film, I wouldn't be surprised. You know, I've just finished a short documentary, but it's all about funding. It's nearly impossible to do it, I think. It's a really hard task. Anytime you see a documentary film that's made it out into the world, you should be doing stand up cheers and applause for that person because that was a Herculean task. Yeah. For sure. Take us back to the original kernel of the idea. What sparked the idea for a film on manufactured home communities, homeowners in communities, their experience? What was that initial idea? How, where did it come from, Sarah? Well, ironically, I was at a documentary film event. I was on a support team for this pitch forum. And one of my friends from Sundance was there and she was like, oh, what's your next film going to be? And it had been a couple of years. And I said, you know, I, I don't think I have another film in me. I don't know. Said so she kind of rolled her eyes at me. And literally the next morning I was reading The Guardian online and I read a story about Mobile Home University and Frank Rolfe. The article had it said that the billionaire Sam Zell owned more mobile home parks than anyone else. And that billionaire Sam Zell, Warren Buffett, owned the largest manufacturer and the two largest lenders. And then it dropped in the news that the Carlisle Group was starting to buy at mobile home parks. And that's what pushed me over the edge. I went right through the ceiling because at, at that point and long before it, and to this day, my concerns about the wealth gap are, I think are the biggest issue facing mankind is the gross inequity in that way. So that's six weeks later, I was at Mobile Home University filming Frank Ralph. Interesting. So interesting. I completely concur uh, about the dangers and the inhumanity of the wealth gap, Sarah. That's what motivated me to get into cooperative development back in the late 80s was really, and it's almost a quaint notion, right? Yeah. The wealth gap really started to explode during the Reagan administration in the in the 80s. And that's what motivated me to look at cooperatives as a way to distribute wealth more broadly and has led to an entire career now in cooperative development. But literally, things have gotten so much worse in the last 30 years in terms of the wealth divide in this country and around the world, frankly. So there's a lot of work to be done to create new ways to help help people build equity in their homes have greater economic security. We come from a, a similar place in terms of what motivates us. You know, I've actually heard film programmers say they're not sure for festivals like that their audiences would be interested in the stories of people who live in mobile home parks. And I like go through the roof on that. I'm like, really? Your audience isn't interested in economic inequity? Your audience doesn't realize that the rental properties in their neighborhood are being bought by private equity? So I thought the film was going to land in the middle of the conversation. It feels like we're still at the, you know, we're part of helping push the conversation over the top. I mean, that strikes me as just emblematic of this deep-rooted stigma against manufactured housing and worse, the people who live in manufactured housing, right? It's, a, it's simply based on, on their housing choice. That's one of the first goals of our film is from the beginning, as you guys well know, one of our first impact goals was to challenge the stereotypes. I say this again all the time. One of the few pejoratives that we can still use in this culture without being called out is to say trailer trash. And it's like, why can we do that? It's an issue of class. It's not a race factoring, but it's class. And we don't talk about class in America and we need to. And the film just takes you right into these homes to meet these residents where I literally want you to fall in love with people you might never have thought about or a type of housing you might never have considered. Obviously, this doesn't affect your listeners, you know, who are park residents, but for the general public, I want to say, you know, you think you know, 
no, you don't, you know, come and think twice and come and live with these people. And just like overwhelmingly the way people respond, you know, is so touching and so heartfelt and they're so moved by these stories and so, you know, woken up to their own prejudices. It's been a really interesting journey. And the film brought you into homes all over the country, in California, in Iowa, and also into a resident-owned community right here in New Hampshire. Yeah. And so you visited Baker and Birch Cooperative in Boscoin, New Hampshire, to shoot a segment. And fun fact for our listeners, Baker and Birch is the smallest rock that we or any of our affiliates work with. But tell us about you know, what you found when you arrived and what was the feel there in the community? It was just like this really really lovely space to be with people. Very, very low income. I think every one of those people in those four units, those homes were on SSID and they spoke so eloquently. I did a short film from that park actually, which aired on Bill Moyer's website, which was called Living the American Dream. It's an eight minute piece. It's still up on his site if you want to go find it. And that park stays in the film. I filmed the 4th of July picnic that they had as a group. And I filmed the fireworks that they had, that they were in the neighborhood that night. And they're just, they're so articulate. I mean, Kathy, Lures, who's one of the people who is so articulate, had worked like three jobs, you know, like all her life. And she just said, you know, I don't know why people call us trailer trash. It's like, this is a home and it's what you can afford. Why would anybody say that? I am so in love with that park and this, I'm in love with all the people in the film, but the park has a very, very special place in my heart because, you know, you could just see, I mean, the park cost $150,000. You know, four units, 150. It was going to go up for sale for condos. And it just is that it was such a genuine way, you know, to talk about home and home ownership and the American dream. The fireworks scene is one of my favorite scenes in the film with that we spend with the residents of Baker and Birch. Mm-hmm. And the young man who sits back in his chair and says, George? you know, George says, you know, poor people are some of the most generous people you'll ever meet. <laughs> Yeah, I thought it was just really touching uh, and it sort of underscored how neighbor helping neighbor, what we know as on a whole bunch of fancy terms that at the end of the day, neighbor helping neighbors just alive and well in resident owned communities. So committed to it. He also says, you know, I've lived in like regular houses and he goes, and I have to say people who live, you know, here live in mobile homes. There's a bigger sense of community here than there is in those other houses. Yeah. And I found that again and again in the parks I filmed in, you know, which I also love and which I got to tell you, every single self-employed artist I know, one of my kind of dreams as I developed this was like, you know what, I want to buy a mobile home park and I want to invite all of my artist friends. You know, everybody can have a house and we'll be able to have time alone, but we could also have shared space. And every single person I've mentioned it to said, please, I'm in. We all want community. The only downside I realized was if I bought a mobile home park, I would have to kick people out to be able to invite my friends in. So (laughs) that's not going to happen anytime soon, Uh but maybe I can find some land that I can buy and make that happen. Build new. We need new units out there, Sarah, desperately. Perfect housing. You visited seven communities. You have four in the film. The film really holds up one very significant special story in Aurora, Colorado. Mm. Could you just give a snapshot to our listeners of what you found when you, you visited Aurora, Colorado and the story that you uncovered? It's the story of the fight to save Denver Meadows. We spent a long time talking and I said to you, Paul, I'm looking for a park where I can follow the whole story. 
from beginning, middle, you know, to end as they try to purchase their park. And you said, you know, I just got this interesting email from an activist in Colorado. She works for nine to five. Her name is Andrea Chiriboga Flor. And there's a fight to save this park. The owner has just asked for rezoning. And I was like, wow, okay. And I found my way to Denver Meadows and met the people there and began telling that story. And it's it's a low-income park. Like so many parks, it was on the outskirts of a town, you know, that filled in, that built in. There is a little Denver Meadows, which literally was set in a meadow with deer and a little creek going through it. They built an, an interstate on one side of it. And across the, the creek, they put in a light rail station. And on the other side of the light rail, they put a four and a half billion dollar medical campus there. And the owner who my understanding and having searched the public record as much as I can, I believe he paid about $1.8 million for the park in the 1960s. He decided he wanted to rezone the park and he put up signs in a largely Spanish speaking park in English in very out of the way places. And one of the English speaking residents saw the signs and let her neighbors know nine to five got involved. And as I was coming into it, they were fighting the city council. They were fighting the rezoning. What happens, what you see in the course of the three years of the fight to save Denver Meadows, greatly condensed, you know, for an 86 minute film, but you see a community rise up and you see them fight on every level possible. They become smart civic activists. They show up at city council meetings and repeatedly to, you know, ask the city to do something. You do see the failure of American civic government to address the issue. You see the reaction locally with a city council election that's a, a house burner. No, what does that say? Barn burner? What, I don't know how those goes. Barn burner. Barn yeah. burner. It was close, like a totally close race. Nails biting, you know, like it took three days for the results to come in. The residents of Denver Meadows, I don't want to give too much about the film, but they left a legacy in Colorado that has made Colorado from going from a state with no protections for park residents to being maybe in the top five or six states with protections for residents. Imperfect, still needs some greater protections, more teeth, you know, the whole thing. But but that's the legacy of a group of very low income, largely Spanish speaking residents who gave everything for what they saw as the American dream. And we owe a lot to them. Yeah, never doubt that a small group of committed citizens can change the world, right? They really demonstrated their tenacity, their commitment to place. Yeah. And the community. Just and each other. Yeah. I don't want to give away too much of the film. I hope everyone will have an opportunity to see the film. But one of the really touching moments in that film, uh, former resident Luz, who was displaced, lost her home and was in a rental. And I thought she captured the essence of what home ownership means in a comment she made. She said, you know, here I am now in this rental. It's more expensive than than what I had when I owned my home. And my home wasn't perfect. You know, there was a crack in the one of the bedroom windows. She said, but you know what? That was my crack in the bedroom window. I owned that crack. I don't own anything here from the walls out, but I owned that window. That was really something. I love that that hits you because a lot of people comment on that. You is know? that right? I'm oh, a lot of people that. comment on that because she's like, I owned every screw in that. Oh, yes. House. She's like, yes, yeah. the window was cracked, but it was my window. 
I think it's a very thought-provoking sense of what homeownership means. Oh, absolutely. The power, the strength uh, yeah. of homeownership. I thought it was all communicated and, and just so genuine through Luz's experience and voice. So incredibly well captured. There are many magical moments in this film that uh, I won't go on with all my other favorites, but that was one for sure. Thank you. So you've put a wrap on A Decent Home. The movie is complete. It's showing in film festivals around the country. I know you've been traveling all over from Montana to Denver, North Carolina, Denver, Denver yep. New Iowa's York, coming up, Boston. Boston. There is a very active film festival scene around the world. And Sarah's film has been picked up by a whole lot here in the U.S., which is really super exciting, Sarah. But with that, Sarah, it seems like you're still active. So tell us, what have you been up to? Well, the film has an engagement campaign that Rock USA, you guys came in as our first sort of seed funders on that to get the planning going for it. But we are doing and you actually don't know yet. This will be news to you. We're going to have a phase two of it, which we will work to get funded. But phase one this year has been working regionally. So every time we're at a film festival, we reach out to the local activists around a festival. Like in Montana, we were the opening night film at a really great film festival called Big Sky Documentary Film Festival. And we met with Kaya Spacing. You guys will remember the name of her, the organization in Montana. NeighborWorks Montana. Thank you, NeighborWorks Montana. We had a meeting with them the day after the film screened there with like 20 local housing activists, and they've got a whole plan created already for ways they can use the film, which is incredibly to help with legislation, to encourage activism, a whole they and they're starting to build an intersectional group. They brought in a public health person to the meeting and a climate change person to the meeting we had with them, which was great. But the main focus of our impact work is Colorado and Iowa which are the two main stories in the film. And in each state, we're doing a screening tour in the parks there so that park residents can use the film to invite neighbors, to invite city councilors, to help people understand why this form of housing is so important. We're working with activists in both of these states to find the parks that we should be working in. Luz Galicia from Denver Meadows is working is one of the people working with us in Colorado. Candy Evans, who's in the film and is from North Liberty, Iowa, is working with us in Iowa. But in Iowa, when we screen, our Iowa premiere will be near the end of April at the a film festival in Dubuque. Then we're screening in the Capitol at Drake University Law School in Des Moines. And then we're going to a screening in Iowa City in the center of the state, very cool film screening program. that's already sold so many tickets, they've added a second screening and maybe a third. Nice. Yeah, we'll be working in Iowa. We're gonna make a short documentary there, the park screening tour. And then legislation that has been defeated three times in Iowa, they're hoping we're helping to build a conversation that hopefully will have an impact on the fourth time that legislation comes up, which will be next year. So it's a very active way of saying, how can you use the film? What can the film do to help you build conversations? I'm finding that one of our biggest roles as the film team is to introduce people who don't know each other. We've actually found people working in like Colorado organizations that didn't know each other and that are now connected and working together. And 
We're trying to bring in, you know, like organized labor has supported us in Iowa. They're big players in this conversation. Any affordable housing conversation anywhere should be including organized labor and public health. That's what I'm finding where people are so deep into their silos and working so hard on their issues. We're kind of able to say, you need to know so-and-so, you know, why don't you come over here, you know, and meet this person. So we're doing that all year long. Oh, and phase two, just so you know, we're looking to raise the money will be to try to connect the dots at the national level. Because like right now, I'm so focused on the regional. I can't figure out like, do we apply to show the film at the U.S. Conference of Mayors or what do we do? So we're looking to hire people who can do that to help us build the plan. It would include creating relationships with the AFL-CIO, with Reverend William Barber's Poor People's Campaign. It would be going to all the people who have a stake in this issue of economic equity and building that out as phase two of the campaign. Sarah, two-parter here. For our listeners who aren't able to get to a film festival to watch it, will there be a time, you think, where they will be able to see the film like a first film? And also, I know that you are scheduled to appear at our upcoming Better Together Leadership Program this summer, and I'm wondering if you can tell folks about what you'll be discussing there, what you'll be covering. Sure. Yes, we've got a distributor that we'll be working with. The first availability of the film will probably be like on iTunes through Apple. Ultimately, it'll hit other streaming platforms. This, you know, will be over the course of, you know, the next year or so. There's only a few ways to see the film right now. One of them will be at your leadership conference because we'll be making the film available for a very limited window for people to see it. Excellent. Yeah, I'm excited for everybody to see it. And I'll be participating in during that week with a few different kind of workshops. We'll be talking about storytelling and how storytelling can be used as a tool for social change. We have our website is a decenthomefilm.com. We've just relaunched it. It's kind of, I don't even know if we told you all that. It's a much more beautiful, interactive site. And where we have a space on it that's called My Decent Home, where we're taking 30-second videos from people who live in mobile homes, manufactured homes, to let them like show their homes and talk about their pride in their home. Oh, that's wonderful. So your folks will have an opportunity to submit to that. So yeah, it's just going to be a series of sort of storytelling workshops. That's really great. Yeah, we're, we're delighted to have you coming to the leadership program. Of course, it's online here in June of 2022, so you'll get to meet co-op leaders from across the country, Sarah, but uh, all, all virtually. Hopefully, we're back in person at Southern New Hampshire University or some other location in the, the following year. Well, at the rate we're going, we'll still be working on the impact campaign, so maybe we'll, we'll have another thing to do with you guys. There we go. Excellent. Yeah. 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 And I'm excited for when the film can be broadly shared. Right now, we will keep the show notes up to date with film screenings as they're appearing at the film festivals around the country. We'll try our best to keep up with your busy schedule, Sarah. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and yours. <laughs> I just want to uh, thank you very much for coming and talking with us and sharing your story, but also the story of A Decent Home with Ownership Matters podcast listeners. And the name you reflected on it several times, really, ownership really does matter. And it's what we're all committed to here. It's uh, critical for everybody to have a, an ownership stake in our country. Thank you for doing your part for raising up home ownership and the importance of home ownership for owners of mobile homes. Oh, well, I appreciate that. You were, you know, such an early stakeholder in this whole project. I mean, truly, I remember sitting in your office going, um, okay, Paul, this is going to take a while. Don't be surprised if you don't hear from me for a few years or don't be, you know, and when I circled back to you 
I don't know, like six years later, you were like, well, you said it might take a while. (laughs) (laughs) So you're believers and I appreciate that. You are welcome. And thank you for all you've done, Sarah. Thanks for joining us. Thank you both. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. See you soon. See you soon. Wow, Mike, that was a great conversation with Sarah. She was really dedicated so much of her well, last decade, really, to documenting what's going on in manufactured home communities. I remember when she visited here in New Hampshire early on, as she said, I did not make the movie personally, but she sat in my office and I was really impressed that someone would, with a very low budget, make her way across the country and seek out resident-owned communities and, and homeowner voices, homeowner stories, to tell the story of what it's like living in a manufactured home community. It was really fun and fun to see it all come on to the big screen. Indeed. Uh, was it she who said you had the face for podcasting? I think she did. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but no, in all seriousness, it's really inspiring. And, and I'm struck by the change of the landscape in this sector since she began her work when she said she was basically introducing widespread audiences to the fact of what's going on in manufactured home communities. And now there's been so much more exposure that we're hearing about it more and more from people coming to us looking for ways to help, which is great. It sure is, Mike. It sure is. Not a month goes by where reporters and storytellers aren't in communities telling the story. And, And you and I have talked about this a lot lately. You know, now with investors buying up single family homes, more and more reporters looking at the linkages, you know, what are, where are investors going to find returns? And that's not just now eating into low income communities, but also into middle-class neighborhoods. This is significant. It sure is. Hey, is there a story that's going on in your community that you think is worth retelling? Drop us a line at ownership matters at rockusa.org. And we'll see if we can get a show schedule. That's ownership matters at rocusa.org. We would really like to hear from you. We love hearing from our listeners. Thanks everybody for joining us and we'll talk again soon.